Well, the year was 1984. It was 1984, and it's proclamation number 5147. Our president was Ronald Reagan. Let me read to you what he wrote on January 13th, 1984, this first ever proclamation uh, declaring a sanctity of human life day. I will read it in its entirety. The president wrote, The values and freedoms we cherish as Americans rest on our fundamental commitment to the sanctity of human life. The first of the unalienable rights affirmed by our Declaration of Independence is the right to life itself, a right the Declaration states has been endowed by our Creator on all human beings, whether young or old, weak or strong, healthy or handicapped. Since 1973, however, more than 15 million unborn children have died in legalized abortions, a tragedy of stunning dimensions that stands in sad contrast to our belief that each life is sacred. These children, over tenfold the number of Americans lost in all our nation's wars, will never laugh, never sing, never experience the joy of human love, nor will they strive to heal the sick or feed the poor or make peace among nations. Abortion has denied them the first and most basic of human rights, and we are infinitely poorer for their loss. We are poorer not simply for lives not led and for contributions not made, but also for the erosion of our sense of the worth and the dignity of every individual. To diminish the value of one category of human life is to diminish us all. Slavery, which treated blacks as something less than human, to be bought and sold if convenient, cheapened human life and mocked our dedication to the freedom and equality of all men and women. Can we say that abortion, which treats the unborn as something less than human, to be destroyed if convenient, will be less corrosive to the values we hold dear? We have been given the precious gift of human life, made more precious still by our births in our pilgrimages to a land of freedom. It is fitting then, on the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade that struck down state anti-abortion laws, that we reflect anew on these blessings and on our corresponding responsibility to guard with care the lives and freedoms of even the weakest of our fellow human beings." Now, therefore, I, Ronald Reagan, President of the United States of America, do hereby proclaim Sunday, January 22nd, 1984, as National Sanctity of Human Life Day. I call upon the citizens of this blessed land to gather on that day in homes and places of worship to give thanks for the gift of life and to reaffirm our commitment to the dignity of every human being and the sanctity of each human life. In witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand this 13th day of January in the year of our Lord 1984 and of the independence of the United States of America, the 208th, Ronald Reagan. I think that uh, since that time, all presidents who esteem highly the dignity and preciousness of human life have followed suit and offered similar statements. Others of our presidents have ignored this, uh, uh, this precedent-setting declaration of Ronald Reagan. If Ronald Reagan were um, alive today, he might be shocked to know that the 15 million abortions in 1984 that he stated as his statistic 
as of about 11 o'clock last night on www.numbersofabortion.com, where they keep a running clock, the numbers were 57,542,555. Somewhere around uh, four times as many as when he first proclaimed the sanctity of human life day. We've tried to recognize this day. Um, Many folks who believe in the dignity and in the sanctity of human life have followed through and annually recognized this day that began with Ronald Reagan's proclamation. We've done that through the years here at Fellowship Bible Church. So if you're new with us today, um, you need to know that this is an annual recognition. And I feel that it is important for pastors across our country to address this through a biblical lens and for us to be challenged in our hearts as to this heinous sin that goes on across our country. We believe deeply in the sanctity of human life, that it is different from animal and plant life. The video clearly stated our beliefs on that. But aren't we a conflicted people as a nation? Though as a, as a whole, in the public system, we teach our children in our textbooks that we are nothing more than evolved animals, we also live out a disparity. We have clearly defined the far surpassing preciousness of an unborn or unhatched kitten, eagle, turtle, or owl as having a greater value than we advanced humanoids. Go figure. To set the stage for today, I would like to remind us of an incident that occurred in a little Old Testament book If you want to turn there, you can. This is still part of our introduction. It's the book of Jonah. You know the story so well that if you just want to listen, um, follow along in your Bible or with a listening ear. Today, I've entitled our sermon, The Sins of a Nation. I have as a model the king of Nineveh. I have as a premise that if it could happen then, it could happen now. Let me remind you of this story. This was um, the story of Jonah. Um, He was a prophet. It's just a four-chapter book in our Old Testament. And he was a man of God. But like many men of God, he wrestled with obeying God. And God asked him to do something very difficult. God asked him to, to get out of his comfortable couch and to get on a ship and to go to Nineveh and trek across the desert and arrive at Nineveh And there was a great walled city filled with wicked people. And God wanted Jonah to proclaim to them that if they did not repent of their sinfulness, he was going to destroy them. You know how the story goes. This is one of our great Sunday school stories. Um, Jonah said, no way, Jose. That was for Hector. And (laughs) off he went and he got on a ship going the opposite direction and the storm came And of course, they threw him in the water to lighten the load. And he was convicted of the reality that God had sent this storm and was chasing him down. And there God created that great fish that swallowed him. And there in the belly of that great fish for three days and three nights, he came to the realization that it is better to obey God in fear and trembling than to live in this belly of a fish. 
One of the remarkable snapshots of Scripture is where it says that that great fish then spit him up on dry ground. I'm not sure what that really looked like. But the fish got him up on, spit him up, and there's Jonah. You can imagine what a, what a stinking mess he must have been. But off he went to Nineveh. We find a result of what happened to him after this in chapter 3 of Jonah. And let me just read the account to you. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. It would take you three days to walk across Nineveh. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. It's a remarkable moment where God opened their minds to truth. And the reality of the message struck home, and they became overwhelmed with the fear of God and the reality of their own sinfulness. And they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, quote, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Here was a a nation that was steeped in sinfulness. And the people heard the message from the man of God and they began to repent. And the king heard about the message and he repented. And then he proclaimed across his country, across his city, for people to turn away from their sinfulness, that God would be merciful and that God would hold back his hand of wrath upon him. I have to say that if it could happen in Nineveh, it could happen in the United States of America. Do you think? I'm not sure we really believe it. You have to realize what a horrible people the Ninevites were. It's why Jonah went a-running away from God. It's why he would rather have a bunch of tattooed, crusty old sailors throw him into the Mediterranean Sea in the middle of a storm where he believed he would drown because he would rather die than go preach God's word to the Ninevites. They were a, they were a, a violent, horrible, bloodthirsty, wicked pagan people who thrived on violence. They intimidated all their enemies when they went on their skirmishes and in their battles to pillage and to destroy and to rape. On the way back, they were known to leave pyramid stacks of human heads of their enemies stacked like cannonballs in the Civil War along the road so that people coming and going would see that the Ninevites had been there. When they captured significant enemies, they were known to fillet them, skinning them out like some bearskin rug and then taking their, their skins and, and tacking them to their city walls as a demonstration of what happens to their enemies. 
Like some people groups today, they thrived on cutting people's heads off. They were wicked to the core. They had no idea of who God was, nor did they care. Believing themselves to be wise, they had become fools and they had become violent and they had turned far away from what God intended. And then one day, a voice came in the city and called on them to repent. And God swept through the people and opened their eyes to the reality of who He was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only one true God, the one to whom they were sinning, the one to whom their sin came up before Him as a stench in His nostrils, the one who with a word and with the sword of His mouth could condemn them forever. And the people began to repent, and the king repented. And what a great day, wouldn't it be? If our king would throw back the curtains of the Oval Office and shout a proclamation to our people that we should repent and fall on our face and confess the sin of our nation in the face of Almighty God, a holy God to whom we have highly offended as a nation. What a day that would be. It could happen. But I tell you, if the church doesn't care about the sins of a nation... Why should the nation care about the sins of, its, of itself? And so this morning, I want us to, to touch on three specific sins as we deal with the sins of a nation. And we cry out to repent of these sins. There is a model in Scripture of God's people praying on behalf of their nation, begging God to be merciful and to forgive sin. One is Nehemiah that's very well known. Before he ever left where he was and traveled to Jerusalem and went and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem from the captivity, he got down on his knees and he wept and he was on his face and he prayed for God to forgive the sins of his nation. Daniel did the same thing. He was in captivity in Babylonia. He recognized that they had been there for at least a hundred years that it was part of God's judgment upon Israel. And he cried out to God to please forgive the sins of his nation. He cared about the righteousness of his nation. I think it's right for God's people to care about the sins of our nation and to be praying and begging God to be merciful, to be interceding on behalf of our nation and that God would send revival to his church and repentance to our leaders, that they would turn their face towards God and receive His mercy. The first sin that I want to look at, and I want you to know that these three sins that I've chosen, and that there are many, indeed we are a nation characterized by sinfulness. But these three sins I have picked in the context of the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because each of these three sins directly relate to the Holocaust of abortion. And each of these three sins are also the kinds of sin that the church can do something about. We can make a difference. And we can make a difference in each of these areas. And we ought to make a difference. The first sin is the sin of sexual promiscuity. The national sin of sexual promiscuity. I'm sure that it will come as no surprise for anyone here in this room today to know that we as a nation are a highly sexually immoral people. We have disregarded God's word and his instruction. We've turned away from biblical moorings 
and the morality of what God's words teaches as to the right relationship between a man and a woman and what is honoring to God and what is sinful outside of the marriage relationship. It's no surprise that springing from the chaotic sexual revolution of the 1960s, that early in the 1970s came the Roe v. Wade decision, overthrowing state laws across our nation that were prohibiting abortion up to that time. I mean, stop and think about it. It's only logical, isn't it? If we're going to get together and we're going to have a great big sex party across our country, choices have consequence. And as a result of the consequence, we have to do something with the unwanted pregnancy. And so we released ourselves from from moral moorings. And we went after anything that restricted our lifestyle and our freedom of choice. It's become a very distorted reality that somehow, by an undisciplined, unbridled behavior, I am free. When actually what we now witness is a nation that is a slave to its own sin. And there's not freedom at all. And that actually freedom is found in God's design. And that the one who invented the act of sexuality between a man and a woman and called it good and designed us beautifully to fit together just right, that that is what sets us free, is when we live inside the boundaries, not outside of the boundaries. I particularly want to challenge the hearts of young people here today, although I am fully aware and fully recognize that this This is a matter that is beyond a teenage matter. It's beyond a college student matter. It's a a man-woman issue. And believe it or not, young people, it is a timeless, ageless issue as well. That means that old people can sin in this way too. Ooh. (laughs) What I want to do is I want to look in the New Testament very briefly, and I want us to look at some New Testament information. And then I want to remind us of an Old Testament illustration. I want you to listen very closely, especially if you're in the younger age bracket and, and you're still trying to put together a moral framework for your lives and you're, you're trying to seek out a direction and a path. Listen to God's Word today, will you? It will bring freedom to your life. It will not restrict you. It will free you. Here's what God's Word says. First of all, turn with me. And by nature of our study today, we have to turn in our Bibles a little bit to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament and chapter 6. I want to give you three key words from the Apostle Paul as he gave instruction and explanation as to God's plan for sexual freedom. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Excuse me, chapter 6. And it begins, we're just going to jump right into the middle of a context and look at verse 18. Notice what Paul says to the Corinthian believers. And you have to remember that the Corinthian church was saturated with immorality. This is not a new problem. This is not like something that Hollywood invented. Ever since people have been around, this is a huge issue. And the Corinthian church was was just laced with immorality. And Paul was addressing it. One of his great concerns was is that the, the Christian church, those who had followed Christ, were conforming to the world around them or they were continuing to live in the same manner in which they lived before they knew Christ. 
Oh, he even said in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians that if we wanted to get away from sexual sin, he, he wasn't talking to them to put it out of the world. You, he said you'd have to leave the world to get away, with it, away from it. It's a reality in our world. But he says, I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church. And you need to put that stuff out of the church. That God's people don't keep living after they know Christ the way they lived before they knew Christ. There is a direct contrast. Paul taught this clearly in 2 Corinthians 5 when he said, If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. And the old is gone and the new has come and we're conforming to the image of Christ. We now see through a different set of lens. We understand that God has a plan. He's a designer. He's a creator. We're accountable to Him. We didn't make this stuff up. God made it up. And it doesn't work when we take it and twist it and, and, and take it outside the parameters of His blessing. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee. That's our first word, by the way, of the three words I want to give you from the Apostle Paul. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What an interesting passage. First of all, let's define sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any kind of physical contact between a man and a woman or anybody else that's going on outside of the marriage relationship. You need to understand this first and foremost, that God planned it, God designed it, God designed us, and it's all for marriage. And that's what makes it work best. And when you take it outside the fence of marriage, you get into all kinds of traps. And you just you end up just falling into all kinds of trouble. And so that's why the Apostle Paul calls on the Corinthian believers with the first key word here to flee, run away from it. Why do we have to flee? Well, because one thing, it's just so easy to do and it's so desirable to do in so many ways. That's normal. That's God designed. But it's off limits until you're married. We have a, a pandemic issue with this in our country. And it's blatant. And it's wide open. And it's promoted. It's promoted in the media. It's promoted in movies and on television and all around us and on our college campuses. The leaders of our college campuses, they know what's going on in their dorms. And they think that that's just the way young people are. And I'm telling you, they're sinning and it's wrong. And they're going to stand before God one day. But the part that bothers me is that close behind are our Christian young people falling into the same mold. We're allowing ourselves to be compressed into the mold of the world. We think that the world knows what it's doing. Just because we watch cool movies and it looks really good and it seems really right and our music is filled with it. And all of our friends are doing this. And so we think, well, that's the way normal people do it. That is exactly the way normal people sin. All right? And so what we have to do is call on our young people to rise up and to flee and to wait for marriage. And that is a message that you just don't hear. That is the most impractical word, Pastor Van. You're ridiculous. I'm not ridiculous. That's what God said. That's what God said to do. I'm not saying it's not fighting the good fight. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not saying that you don't need to struggle and, and 
and have accountability in our life, but I'm saying we need to be wise with our choices and godly in our thinking. And we have to have these parameters. And the first word is flee. Look what he says here. And I don't have every explanation to this passage, but I do want you to notice that what he's addressing here are believers in the Lord Christ and that when we're saved and born again, that our body becomes the temple of the Holy Ghost, of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says here. You see, in the Old Testament, there used to be a place. There used to be a a tabernacle, and then there was a temple, and there was a place where people met God. And God was there in a building, and people wanted to go to God, so they went to the building. and, And there in the inner part of the tabernacle was an inner room called the Holy of Holies. And that's where God would come and meet with the high priest, and he would communicate. And that's where the sins of the people were taken care of. But I want to tell you, do you remember when Jesus hung on the cross that it says that the veil was rent? In the temple, that that Holy of Holies had a thick curtain that separated it from the public. And when Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and He accomplished once and for all the substitutionary death where His blood could be counted for forgiveness for us in the presence of a holy God. That is, He went on the cross, took our sin, paid the price in the presence of a holy God, and His blood covers our sin. And we can come to Him, and by faith, we can receive as finished what He did for us, what we couldn't do for ourselves. And in the historical account in the Gospels, when that happened, and He completed the task that God had sent Him to the cross for, Jesus, God in the flesh, He's the only one who could do it. He's the only one who could keep the law. He's the only one who is the perfect spotless lamb that the moment he finished his work, the veil was rent from top to bottom. God tore it. They say that you could hook up teams of oxen to that piece of fabric and it was as thick as a man's wrist that fabric was and there was no way you could pull it apart and God opened it. What did he do? He was, he was providing free access now between man and God through Jesus Christ. And when we come to the cross and we accept the forgiveness of God in Christ, guess what happens? We become children of God. We become declared righteous in His presence. But not only that, we become the very temple of the Holy Spirit and Christ Himself dwells in us. That is the most remarkable reality. And that's why as Paul is teaching the Corinthian believers, he says, don't you understand that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And because of that, don't you understand that every other sin you commit is outside your body, but when you commit sexual sin, you are sinning against your own body. You are desecrating the very temple of the Holy Spirit. That's partly why, especially when Christians sin sexually, they're overwhelmed with guilt because the Spirit of God lives in you and you can't process that. And there's no compatibility with that kind of action. Now, we could illustrate this by imagining, don't imagine too much, but we could imagine what if you heard that some kind of uh, sexual immorality went on right up here on the platform in the auditorium. And you would be offended by that. And you would say, what do you mean? That's not, that's the place where we meet to worship and that's right where the pastor stands to preach and that is so inappropriate. I want to tell you, this is just a room. This is just a room. Now, God is everywhere present, so He's here, but this is an auditorium. You, won't, you don't hear me say this is the sanctuary. What the sanctuary is for the believer in Christ in the New Testament is our body. And the Spirit of God lives in us. And so if we engage in this kind of sin, it is an offense to God because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our own life. So it's like, wow, i got to care about this. Yes, you've got to care about it. But nobody else cares about it. 
God cares about it. And God gave clear instruction. And that's why he said, flee, man, flee. Run from it like Joseph did from Potiphar's wife. And the reason you have to flee is so that you don't fall. Two other quick words. The next one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So we have instruction on this in 1 Corinthians 6. And then we have it in 2 Corinthians 6. And again, he reminds us um, that we are the temple of, of the living God. We are representing light in Christ. Let me just read this passage quickly. And our key word here is to separate. Separate. Look what it says. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Look at here it is. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and they quote from the Old Testament, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The idea here is that once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are identified as a child of God. You are, the, you are a reflection of the light of God. And he's saying that a believer in the Lord Christ is not to have a relationship with somebody who's not a believer in the Lord Christ. It's the same as light interacting with darkness. It doesn't work. You don't do that. One of the problems that we have is that we have in the church become very careless with who our children date. We've become very careless about the relationships that we allow and that we rationalize and that we justify. I'm not saying that Christian young people can't make poor decisions and have consequences at all. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we don't help ourselves by allowing our young people and not teaching our young people that you marry a committed Christian. You don't just marry anybody or you don't just marry anybody. Yeah, I was born in America. I'm a Christian. You marry a committed Christian or what's going to happen? You're going to end up living like the rest of the world. And so the, wor the word here is separate. The first word, flee. The second word, separate. The third word is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll turn there quickly. It's, it's easy to understand this passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just keep turning to the right in your Bible. About 15 more pages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we begin with verse 3. It doesn't get any clearer than this. Paul is instructing, the Apostle Paul is instructing the Thessalonian believers, and he said, For this is the will of God for your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God. There it is. He's telling us, this is my will. This is what I'm telling you. Your sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is being separate from sin. Making choices and making decisions that remove me from the temptation of sin so that I don't enter into sin. And I'm fighting to stay back from sin. Now, everybody sins. There's no such thing as accepting Christ as your Savior and then getting into some state of perfection from then on. The only way we will finally be perfect is the ultimate accomplishment of our sanctification, which happens in the very presence of Christ one day after this life, when we leave this body. In the meantime, we're in this body of death and flesh, and, and the old ways cry out from within us, and the flesh wars against the Spirit. Paul taught that very clearly. 
And so he says, but I want you to live sanctified. I want you to live separate from sin. That's why I can't look at certain things. That's why I can't go certain places. That's why I don't hang out with certain kinds of people. It's not because I'm a legalist. It's because it's God's will for me to be sanctified. Therefore, I separate from it. All right. That you abstain. Here it is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's any sex act outside of the marriage relationship and commitment that each one of you, verse four, know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles. That would be people outside of Christ who do not know God. That no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Paul took this very seriously. Look at verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. We're called to live in holiness. Verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I'm not making this up. This is God's word. And we have to humble our hearts and we have to live according to God's word to receive his blessing. What's my point here? We live in the middle of a time and a time frame where our nation is is steeped in sexual immorality. The church has to fight against that sexual immorality by raising up children who flee and who abstain and who separate. Abstain is our third word. Who flee and who separate. And First Thessalonians 4, who abstain. You see it right there, that each of you should abstain from sexual immorality. We're not prudes. We're not anti-sex here. We're all for it, as long as you're married and it's God-designed. That's the way it's supposed to be. What we are against is our young people and our adults living in sexual sin. How can the church ever be the salt and light in society in a, in a sexually immoral culture if we are taking on the trappings of the world in this area? How great would it be for our president to stand up, for our school principals to stand up, and instead of trying to make... Rules to help people be safe when they're, of course, going to get involved and call them to abstinence. For parents to be calling on their young people to avoid this. I am not naive. And you can, you can say anything you want about me, but I'm telling you, this is what God's Word says. And we need to be repeating what God's Word says. And God's Word works. And we need to repent as a nation of the blatant, in God's face, sexual immorality that is all over the place and with which we entertain ourselves with regularly. There's another one and we must move on. By the way, the Old Testament illustration is 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. And it's Solomon and his example of how when he entered into immoral relationships with 700 wives, 500 wives, 700 wives, and 300 concubines, that in the same passage, 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, he ends up worshiping Molech and the Ashtaroths, which was a child sacrifice idolatry. We read it and we think, how could Solomon have let his wives sacrifice his children? We do the same thing. In the worship of our own bodies and in the worship of our own freedom, we as a nation have sacrificed millions of babies. 
The second sin of the nation that we need to care about as a church and that we can impact and influence is the sin of personal passivity. The sin of personal passivity. This was referenced in the video this morning as we entered, entered into our, our uh, sermon time. Let's turn back to Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs chapter 31, and let's just glance at the verse that they reminded us. And they also used the Luke 10 passage of the story that Jesus told that is so well known of the Good Samaritan. But let's let our eyes look at Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9. Look here. Open your mouth for the mute. Proverbs 31, beginning with verse 8. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Is there any needier group in our country today than the unborn? Can they speak for themselves? Do they have any rights in our country? Listen, A kitten or an eagle has more rights than an unborn baby in our culture. It is mind-boggling. And what do we do? Pretty much nothing. In James chapter 1, James chapter 4 verse 17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's a powerful verse. Can I tell you when I get convicted of this? This verse comes to my mind several times a week. When I'm walking by other people's trash, like in a Walmart parking lot, and I look down and I think, somebody ought to pick that trash up. And then I take three or four more steps, and then this verse comes to my mind. This happens every week to me. And it, sa- and it says, to him that knoweth to do right, to him it is sin if he doesn't do it. So I turn around and I go pick up somebody's trash and put it in the wastebasket. But then I sin by wishing bad things against the person who dropped it. <laughs> and I don't know what to do with that. The story of the Good Samaritan illustrates beautifully the sin of personal passivity. It's seeing a need, knowing that there is a helpless, broken, dying individual created in the image of God, designed most miraculously and marvelously in their mother's womb, and helpless to help themselves. And there was that man in Luke chapter 10 attacked and beaten by thugs, left to die, naked and bleeding, and the priest and the Levite both ride by, and they don't want anything to do with it. They were very passive, weren't they? It was the Samaritan who came along and who engaged and became a voice for someone without a voice. What my concern here is that we be guilty, like I don't know if it's a real story or not, but the story that you hear often of the church in Germany that was backed up next to the railroad tracks and the boxcars full of incarcerated Jews heading to internment camp, heading to the gas chambers, would go by down the rail tracks and they would be pounding on the sides of the boxcar and screaming out the windows and air holes and calling out and the church people would just sing a little louder so they didn't hear it. I don't think we should just sing a little louder so we don't hear what's going on. Somehow, we become guilty of a passivity that is a sin. When we are to call out for those who are voiceless, and we're to reach a lending hand to those who are helpless, and we see it, and the need is great, and we do nothing, we are guilty. It's what's scary about people who are in power, like our Supreme Court, who have an ability... 
with one vote and decision to lend a hand to stop this slaughter. Can you imagine the accountability with which they will stand before a holy God one day? You had it in your power to help the helpless and you did nothing. I wonder if the church stands accountable for our level of passivity. Finally, and not its last for our sin, three sins this morning, the sin of sexual promiscuity, the sin of personal passivity, and I want to mention the sin of racial partiality. Of racial partiality. Now remember, each one of these has a direct correlation with the Holocaust of abortion. Each one of them are sins that the church needs to be sensitive to, that we're not guilty, so that we can be the salt and light that we ought to be in society. Listen to what John Piper, a a well-known pastor who recently retired from his church in Minnesota, said. He's often commentating on cultural and social issues through a biblical worldview, biblical lens. John, pa- John Piper said this, quote, The de facto effect, the de facto effect, I don't call it the main cause, but the net effect of putting abortion clinics in the urban centers is that the abortion of Hispanic and black babies is more than double their percentage of the population. Every day, 1,300 black babies are killed in America. 700 Hispanic babies die every day from abortion. Piper says, call this what you will. When the slaughter has an ethnic face and the percentages are double that of the white community and the killers are almost all white, something is going on here that ought to make the lovers of racial equality and racial harmony wake up. I think John Piper's right. In the inner city of New York in 2012, more black babies were killed by abortion. 31,328 is the count that they give. 31,328 babies in 2012 in New York City than were allowed to live. It was 24,775. 6,570 more abortions than live births just in New York City alone almost completely in the black and Hispanic communities. African Americans make up 13% of the population, yet over 30% of all abortions that take place take the life of a black child. More white babies are aborted per head count because their population is skewed. Black population is only 13%, and yet... 30% of all the abortions this year. And by the way, uh, as I'll remind you of the number, as of last night at about 11 o'clock, it was, um, well, let me just, uh, in the United States this year, 50,691. In the U.S., since 1973 and Roe v. Wade being passed, 57,000,000. 542,555, that was the number I used earlier, since Roe v. Wade in 1974. In the United States this year so far, up to 11 o'clock last night, 50,691.8. For every 1,000 births among whites or pregnancies among whites, there are 138 abortions. For every 1,000 pregnancies among blacks, there are 531 abortions. Let me say that number again. For every 1,000 pregnancies among whites, there are 138 abortions. For every 1,000 pregnancies among blacks, there are 531 abortions. 
Alveda C. King, the daughter of the slain civil rights leader A.D. King and the niece of Martin Luther King Jr., often quotes her uncle, Dr. King, when outlining her opposition of abortion. She writes, quoting Dr. Martin Luther King, The Negro cannot win as long as he is willing to sacrifice the lives of his children for comfort and safety. How can the dream survive if we murder the children? Every aborted baby is like a slave in the womb of his or her mother. The mother decides his or her fate. One has to believe, don't they? These are my words, that Dr. King would not be impressed with our first black president of the United States who quoted when asked about his view of abortion said, quote, I've got two daughters, but if they make a mistake, I don't want them punished with a baby. Shame on him. Shame on him. But I want to tell you something. There is definitely a racial aspect to the flood of abortion in our country. The church needs to care about racism. The church needs to care about the value and the dignity and the sanctity of all people everywhere, as was presented in the opening introduction video. Do you know, very quickly, do you know that in the book of Galatians, in, uh, that the Apostle Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, in chapter uh, 2, 11 through 14, and chapter 3, 26 through 21, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, that the Apostle Paul had to get in the Apostle Peter's face for racism? You ever read that account? Here's old Peter. He was sitting down, and... Uh, He was sitting down with a bunch of Gentiles and he was enjoying a big old pork sandwich. And this time in the church, there was a lot of separation between Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews for whom Christ came first, and and the gospel came to the Jews first, let me put it that way. And then the Jews took it to the Gentiles, but it's for all people everywhere. The Jews in the church were having a real problem letting Gentiles accept Christ. They thought that they were superior. They were racist. And in Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul recounts an incident that happened where he said, I went personally and got in Peter's face because he was eating pork at the table with a bunch of Gentiles and then a bunch of Jewish Christians came in and he got up and he moved away and he pretended like he wasn't a part of the pork-eating supper. And, and Paul says, that's shameful. Knock it off. He goes on in chapter 3 of Galatians and we, don't, we won't take time to turn there. And that's where he says that in Christ, there's neither man nor woman. There's neither slave nor free. There's there's neither adult or child, Jew or Gentile. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that that ultimately, because of the sinfulness of our own hearts and the bent that we have to criticize people who are not like we are, that ultimately, that the only solution for racism is at the foot of the cross where the ground is level. And that it's at the foot of the cross where we realize that Jesus died for all people everywhere. And that no matter what shape your nose is, or your eyes, or your lips, or your ears, or your legs, or the way your hair grows, or anything, that we're all equal made in the image of God, all equally valuable, and for whom all God sent Christ to die equally. It's in the church where there ought to be a huge testimony of the bond of love and the peace that is in Christ that melds through the races. I don't have the answer for this in our community. 
I just know that Fellowship Bible Church needs to be a colorblind church. And I know that we need to demonstrate for a lost and dying world that Christ is the difference in the, among our young people and their sexual immorality. And that Christ motivates us and drives us outside of our comfort zone, away from our personal passivity. And that Christ is the one who takes over our lives and changes us. And we show, we show the fact that there is no racial partiality here whatsoever. That gives us then a moral high ground to look at the world and say, come be like us. We call you out. Sins that I wish our president, our judiciary, our governor, our local leaders would cry out to God before the people and admit that we've sinned before a holy God and repent and ask for forgiveness. So what do we do? Let me just click off these concluding points. You've been more than a patient audience. What's our response? Number one, when it comes to these sins and the sin of abortion, I think one thing is we need more passion because without more passion, there will be no action. We've got to care. We've got to pay attention so that we care. And then listen to the Spirit of God so that we can take action. More passion. Number two, more prayer. This is Nehemiah and Daniel crying out for God to forgive and to spare their nation and to be merciful. We need to pray like that regularly that God would be merciful to us. Number three, more parenting. Let's engage with our young people. Let's, I know we're trying. I, I am not trying to imply that any parent wakes up in the morning and, and tries to figure out a way to help their kid's life implode or explode. What do we do? I don't know, but I know one thing, that we fight. We fight for all we're worth to keep our kids pure, to show our kids that God designed all of this and that it's for marriage and that when the, our young women in the church walk down the aisle in a white dress, it actually means something. More passion, more prayer, more parenting, more, more participation. I've been convicted about this. It's too busy to do everything. Hard to know what to do. Not going down to the march again this week. Why not? Didn't have it on my calendar. Overbooked on that day. I don't know if that makes any difference, but it seems to me that the more people who march on Washington, that it ought to get someone's attention. A republic doesn't work if the citizens aren't involved. We are the government of our nation in a republic. We don't have a dictator. We don't, we don't have a democracy. We're not, we are governed by the people, for the people, through the people. And if we don't get involved, it doesn't work. Finally, number five. I want to conclude with a word to the men and women who've been there and done that. See, abortion affects men too. And it affects women. Huge issues here that are overlooked so much. But you're in the right place today. You're in, you're in the place where the gospel comes to you as a free gift. And that there is no sin that you've ever done or participated in that God won't forgive. If you come in humility, 
before God in Jesus' name and confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How would that feel? That's great. It's the only answer. You can't undo the past. Choices have consequence. And I'm very sensitive to the reality on a day like today that, A, it's possible people know, because I always announce it ahead of time, so they don't come because they can't deal with thinking about it. Or, B, that in our audience there are people who've experienced this. What are you going to do with that? Listen, that's, that's bigger and greater than your emotional framework. That is beyond anything that you can process in the intellect and the emotion and the will. The only thing you can do is you can package up that sin and you come and you dump it at the foot of the cross and you find out that that's exactly what Christ did when He came. He paid the penalty for that sin. And when God forgives, it is gone as far as the East is from the West. Well, Father, we're grateful for these great truths that though we sin and we stumble and we're easily deceived and easily buy into the systems around us, that when we come to the cross, there's forgiveness there waiting. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty for us and that you love us unconditionally. Would you heal hearts today? Would you challenge young people to walk in purity? Father, would you help us all to, to, to challenge ourselves and to discipline ourselves out of our passivity And would you help us, Father, through the love of Christ to overcome racial partiality. And Lord, all of these things influence this this sin of abortion. Would you please, today we ask, in the spirit of the declaration that Ronald Reagan made, that Christians and Americans everywhere gather and thank you for life and cry out to you to stop this great sin. Father, we thank you for the sanctity of human life today, the beauty of our humanity. And we also confess before you the horrible sin of the murders of abortion that have gone on. Father, would you please stop it? Would you convict hearts and open eyes and help us to know how to respond to this and to understand with a new passion to get into action, Lord. Show us what to do and how to live. Bless our young people to see through the fog of these false philosophies in the world and to see Christ and to understand how the Word of God works and that you're out there with your hand of blessing waiting. We commit our day to you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.